And so, gracious God, in these moments, may the words of my mouth and the reflections of our hearts and minds together today be found pleasing in your sight. O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. Friends, Luke's story of what happens on the road to Emmaus is one of seven post-resurrection stories in the Gospels. And like all the rest of them, it's a little bit mysterious. The stranger whom the disciples don't recognise at first, who turns out to be the Messiah and then vanishes from their sight just as soon as they recognise who he is. The stories that come before the crucifixion stories aren't like this. They're 100% solid and physical. Jesus is nailed to a cross with a nameplate tacked above his head and dies in front of hundreds of eyewitnesses. No case of mistaken identity, no sudden disappearance or appearance. His death is so real. His resurrection, on the other hand, as we come to this reading this morning, is largely rumour. Someone has said that someone has said the tomb was empty, but that could mean anything. Maybe his body's been stolen. Maybe he revived and walked away. It was the women at the tomb who had first sought to spread the story, and they'd had a hard time convincing the others that this was true. Thomas didn't buy it, not until he'd seen it for himself. And you see, seven resurrection stories just don't go very far. Jesus didn't appear to everyone before he ascended to heaven, which left plenty of people to weigh the evidence for themselves, to listen to the testimonies of those who were there and decide if and what they were going to believe. That, in a nutshell, is the situation for the whole post-Easter church. It's the situation faced by Luke's church and the churches of the other gospel writers. It's the situation that the Apostle Paul addresses in his letters to churches across the region. It is also our situation today. None of us were there. Not for the real death or the rumoured resurrection. All of us have a decision to make about the truth of what we've heard. Now if it's all true, then we have far more than hearsay to make up our minds. If the Lord is risen indeed, then we may base our decision on encounters with the living God. The question is, what's the living God's address? Where do we go? For Luke, the answer is somewhere on the road between here and Emmaus. And so we're going to explore this encounter from Luke 24 together today. In our readings, we heard that the women went to the tomb at dawn on Easter morning and came back and told the disciples that the body of Jesus had gone and that an angel had said it, he was risen. The disciples, Luke reports, don't believe a word of it. And I guess we can understand something of their disbelief in this moment. Disbelief is a significant part of the resurrection stories in the Gospels. It's been part of life from that day to this. The Gospel writers have ensured that scepticism is included in all of their tellings of the Easter story. Luke goes on to tell us that later that same day, two disciples of Jesus were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. Passover is over. They'd have been one of many travelling back to their homes from Jerusalem. 
and these two people, one named Cleopas, the other not identified, are on foot. Jesus' disciples were always walking. None of them had enough to afford any animals to ride. It takes about two hours to walk the seven miles to Emmaus, and this is how long they would have to talk over the roller coaster events of the past three days. That first Easter, the trial, the crucifixion, the silent procession to the tomb, and then the women's vision of the angels and the empty grave, real death and rumoured resurrection. Now, we don't know anything about these disciples. They weren't famous. They weren't members of the Twelve. They weren't leaders. They were common garden variety disciples like you and me. As they walked along, they were talking with one another about all the things that had happened. It's a scene that's remarkably ordinary, really. It isn't a dramatic setting for a great event. There's no angel here. There's no empty tomb. It's just two friends comforting each other, going over and over the events as if mere repetition of them would bring some relief, seeking desperately to understand and to accept, but at the same time numb with shock and with grief. Their humdrum, obscure lives had been lifted out of the ordinary by their master. They'd been so proud, so hopeful as they followed him. Now he was not only dead, he was disgraced, and discredited in the eyes of the world. You see, crucifixion was not only a horrible and obscene way to die, but more importantly, it was state-sponsored, a state-sponsored method of declaring a person to be contemptible, subhuman, not even fit to be executed in a decent way. Crucified victims were victims of extreme shame. And after their deaths, their names were blotted out of history. We don't know the identity of any other pre-Christian victim of crucifixion. If the story of Jesus had ended with his death, we would likely have never heard of him too. And because of all this, the disciples are experiencing complex and turbulent emotions. Yes, there's pain and sorrow, but there's also anger and betrayal. Had they been led astray, were they victims? Certainly the world around them would offer them no consolation for the public degradation and execution of their master. They didn't get any hope or comfort from the birds or from the flowers. It was just painful and desperately sad. As Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, flesh and blood cannot inherit the imperishable. Human eyes and ears can see and hear, but unless there is divine intervention, they cannot understand. And so they didn't jump for joy when Jesus joins them on the road. They didn't comprehend what was happening. The crucified one walks alongside these grief-stricken disciples, steps matching steps. They don't come to him, he comes to them. Yet they don't know him. He alone has the power to make himself known. We read that their eyes were kept from recognising him. Not, a, not that they didn't recognise him, but that their eyes were kept from recognising him. The initiative here in these verses is all God's. Or did they just imagine it in a peak of grief and sadness? Jesus says to them, what's this conversation all about then? 
and in sheer misery and despair they stop in the middle of the road and they turn to this man with eyes of pain. Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened there? What things? The stranger replies. What a question. It must have been painful for them to answer. Their reply, I imagine, almost recited by rote, mechanically, dully, lacking in conviction in this moment. Jesus of Nazareth, they explain, was a prophet mighty in word and deed before God and all the people. And our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. And the facts that they're reciting would soon become a core part of the teaching of the church. But at this point, none of that has registered. The two disciples know the facts, but they don't understand the facts. They say, we had hoped. I think hope in the past tense is surely one of the saddest sounds a human being can make. We had hoped he was the one. We had believed that things might really change, but we were wrong. It's over now. No more stories, no more illusion. Back to the way things were. We had hoped, they say, that he was the one to redeem Israel. And now they continue. Some of the women in our group are telling this crazy story. They were at the tomb early in the morning. They didn't find the body. They came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that Jesus was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they didn't see him. Now, wouldn't you think they'd be putting two and two together by now? If flesh and blood could inherit the kingdom, these two would have been able to figure out already who the third person walking with them was. According to Luke, though, God is in charge of their understanding. Those of us gathering to worship today are in the same position as those two disciples. We've heard the testimony of the women. We've heard about the empty tomb and the angels. But like him, we did not see. These words are important ones for us. Luke is writing for Christians who were not there and had not seen. They were surrounded as we are with people who don't know the risen Jesus and think this is all just a fairy story. Disbelief is always going to be with us. But Luke goes on. Jesus turns to them and tells them that they are slow of heart. And then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he helps them understand. This was the Bible study to end all Bible studies. Think about it just for a moment. The resurrected Jesus walking along, beginning to teach them the real meaning of the Old Testament. It's about him, how he would suffer and die for all humankind, how he would complete his work on our behalf and then go into glory. See, Christ is not the one who wins the power struggle in these moments in the Easter narrative. He's the one who loses it. The Christ is not the undefeated champion the people were expecting. He's the suffering servant, the broken one, who, into whose glory his wounds are still visible. Those hurt places are proof that he is who he says he is. 
Because the way you recognise Christ, the way you recognise Christ's followers, is not by their muscles, but by their scars. Which means that they're not to despise the painful parts of our lives anymore. Which means they're not to interpret their defeats as failures anymore. Which means we're not to fear our enemies anymore. Not even death itself. Contrary to all good common sense, we're instead to follow him into the scariest, most dangerous places in the world armed with nothing but a first aid kit. Because we, like him, aren't warriors or fighters, but physicians, wounded healers, whose credentials are our own hurt and broken places. And all of this comes about because the stranger on the road showed them how Jesus is the context for all the scriptures. He is its message and he is its interpreter. It's why we and lots of churches like ours have as the first part of what we call our Declaration of Principle that our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ, God manifest in the flesh, is the sole and absolute authority in all matters. It's all about him, learning from him, following him, being shaped by him. He is the centre of our worship and our life. And so for these two hours, the men continue walking the seven miles to Emmaus. As Jesus patiently leads them through the scriptures, what a superb moment. Or did they just imagine it and their desire to remember a better day than they'd actually experienced? Now they're nearly at their destination. Jesus goes to walk on, but they invite him to stay. It's evening, stay with us. And so he does. Clearly they're drawn to him, even though they still don't know him. They go into the inn together. They take a table. They're served a meal. The disciples are hosts. Jesus is their guest. And it's the role of the host to take and bless the bread. But now the guest takes over as host. And as he does that, he blesses the bread and he breaks it. And in that moment, their eyes are opened and they recognize him. Maybe it's the oddness of the act that makes the scales fall from their eyes. Or maybe it's the familiarity of the way he does it. Something they've seen him do before on a green hillside with five loaves and two fishes. In an upper room with unleavened bread and Passover wine. He takes, he blesses, he breaks and he gives. And through the torn, fragrant edges of the loaf, he holds this out to them. They look at him and they know who he is. And one moment later, he vanishes from their sight. They recognised him. Or did they just imagine it all? Was it just a projection of their wishes and their dreams? No one outside the community of faith can answer those questions. Jesus didn't show himself to everyone. He only drew near to those who were disciples already and then later to the Pharisee named Saul, who becomes Paul. And no one's ever stated the truth of the resurrection more definitively than Paul. The earliest account of the resurrection was written by him in 1 Corinthians 15. Did he make it up? Were the gospel writers all deceived? Think for a moment about us together today. 
Some of us, as we gather to worship, have our childhood faith intact. Some of us uh, here have pieced our faith together again in a different way from the way in which we inherited it, but it's still strong. Others of us have serious questions about it all. Some of us are exploring, others are doubting. And there's nothing any preacher or indeed any gospel writer can do that will convince someone who stubbornly doesn't believe. The resurrection cannot be proved by normal means. Faith is a mysterious thing, but it's not human work. It's a gift from God. But the struggles and the blindness and the misunderstandings of these two disciples doesn't keep Jesus coming to them. He doesn't limit his post-resurrection appearances to those who have full confidence in him. He comes to the disappointed and to the doubtful and to the disconsolate. He comes to those who don't know their Bibles, who don't recognise him even when he's walking right beside them. He comes to those who have given up and are walking home, which makes this whole encounter with the risen Christ about the blessedness of brokenness. Jesus just seems to prefer working with broken people, with broken dreams in a broken world. And in this beautiful story of the Emmaus Road, we see friendship and kindness. We see the scriptures, we see the breaking of bread and wine, community, hospitality, the word, the sacraments, all the ways in which Christ has promised to be present with us, which also happen to be the everyday activities of the church. Not the building or the institution, but the people of God, us who care for each other and laugh and weep and waste time and share special times together. Who care for strangers and for the lost and the lonely and the vulnerable and the new. Who study the scriptures and try to learn about God and what it means to be one of Jesus' disciples. Who stop to share bread and wine as Jesus asks us to do. This is our way of life. And listen to what the disciples say to one another at Emmaus. Were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? Remember how we said it was the Bible study to end all Bible studies? Well, that's just a manner of speaking, really. It's perhaps better for us to think about this as the Bible study to begin all Bible studies. Because the Lord is the author and the Holy Spirit is the interpreter of the scriptures. And we're invited to enter into that tradition when we read the Bible together today. The living God continues to help us understand and see Christ in it all. And so friends, in the retelling of the story, Jesus himself draws near to us. Jesus is drawing near to you. He's present in his word right now as surely as he was alive and interpreting the scriptures on the road to Emmaus. And so friends, this morning, take heart. This is very real indeed. However it seems to you today, know that you cannot lose him for good, even if it doesn't feel like you can recognise him in this moment. He has promised never to leave you or to forsake you. God is here. Hallelujah.
Does your heart burn within you? Do you recognise him? If you do, it is the work of God. It's the risen Christ present with us right now, drawing near to us, showing us that the final word is not death, but life. Not judgment, but mercy. Not loneliness, but a community bound together by the unconquerable love of God forever and ever. Friends, love wins. Thanks be to God. Amen.